All right, let's begin. Let's let's begin with the. Um, okay, so the um, we are approaching Yom Kippur, which is tomorrow night, and uh, it's a day of day of prayer, obviously, and the. In terms of the many, many tefillot that we have on Yom Kippur, there are some things that are essential, some things that are peripheral. So let's get to the essentials first. One of the essential prayers, really there are two essential prayers on Yom Kippur. Apart from the fact that we have a general general Shemona Esrei, Yom Kippur is a day like all the holidays, there's a Shemona Esrei set of blessings. Blessings are an expression of the sanctity of the day, called Kedushat Hayom. It's true of Shabbat, true of all the holidays, Rosh Hashanah, that's not different. But then the, within the prayers of Yom Kippur, we have two very, two prayers that are, two pieces of liturgy that are very critical to the day. One of them is the, what we, we call Tzrichot, the request for forgiveness. And the Srichot, and I've mentioned this in the past, the key idea of the Srichot is the repetition of the Psukim in the story of the Golden Calf, the Ego, where at the end of that story, the Moshe is requesting forgiveness for the people, so it is revealed to Moshe the nature of God's attributes. Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun Erech HaPayim V'Avchesed V'Emet That um so we are repeating that over and over again on Yom Kippur and traditionally it was recited in all of the five prayers of Yom Kippur all of them that's it, there are five prayers of Yom Kippur there's night, Mariv, morning prayer, Musaf, three, Mincha and the additional prayer of the fair called Ne'ira in each of these five prayers we have what we call Srichot the place of the Srichot in the davening is actually very interesting. Where do we say Srichot? First of all, the Srichot are only recited in a communal setting, and that recited privately. So on Yom Kippur, we are saying Srichot. I mean, we. I mean, I'm talking about the classic prayer. The classic prayer has the Srichot in all five of the, of the Amidot, but only when only the congregation says it. The individual is not, does not say Slichot in the private Shemona Esra. Of course, at night, Yom Kippur night, we don't actually have a, a communal repetition of the Shemona Esra, because Shemona Esra is only repeated in the other prayers, but Mariv has no Chazavat Hashats. So then the Slichot are recited after the Shemona Esra, but they're introduced by a little poem, and the poem, at least in the Ashkenazic rite, the poem is an attempt to locate the Srichot within the very fabric of Yom Kippur. The poem that introduces the Srichot on the night of Yom Kippur it begins with the words Yahweh Tachnunenu. That's a very interesting poem. And that begins, uh, let's see, in this, well, it's after Shimon Asri. I don't know where you have it, but it's a different master. In this Masa, which I think is Adam, I don't know what Masa this is, it's on page, which has no meaning actually. It's on page uh, 31, but right after the Shemona Esrei at night, 
this year we say Vayichulu or Shabbos whatever Yala Tachlu Neinu Me'erech that's the poem yeah, it is beautiful and this Yala Tachlu Neinu the page has so this one is page 31 I don't know if you have the same so Yala Tachlu Neinu Me'erech is a very interesting little poem but for our, the main point for our purposes is this that Yahweh Tachlu so it's a backwards it's a, it goes the, it's the alphabet backwards Tachlu Neinu Shavoteinu Rinu Neinu Koleinu Tzakoteinu etc. Um, the first point is that it actually begins with the word Yahweh the tagline Yahweh is the first line the second word is Yavo and the third is Yerae so it's modeled on what we call Yalav Yavo Yalav Yavo is the fundamental prayer of the holidays. The basic prayer of the holidays. That's how it begins. Right? We talk about our, our God should remember us. With score, with code, which are two of the Rosh Hashanah terms. And, but we say this every holiday, every festival. We say Yahweh fundamentally, the word Zikaron, to remember in the liturgy often refers to forgiveness. For example, Rosh Chodesh, where we say Musaf on Rosh Chodesh. We say Musaf, you daven Musaf whenever you, whenever you bring a Musaf, whenever you bring the extra sacrifice. So there's a list in the Torah of the days you bring sacri- extra sacrifices. One is Rosh Chodesh. It doesn't seem to be a holiday in and of itself. It's not a holy day necessarily, but it's a day you bring sacrifices, special sacrifices. So in those days we have a Musaf. So in the Musaf of Rosh Chodesh, we talk about Rosh Chodesh as a zikaron. Zikaron v'chulam yiyu u'tushuat nafsham miyad sonei. Right? Um, so Rosh, Rosh Chodesh is a day of zikaron. Why is Rosh Chodesh a day of zikaron? Why is Rosh Chodesh a day of, of remembering? Rosh Chodesh is a day of, is a day of uh, forgiveness. Rosh Chodesh has as one of its theme, Kapara. It's actually an interesting custom, by the way. I don't know where it starts. It's a pretty old custom. Maybe starting in Kabbalistic circles, I don't know. But the day before Rosh Chodesh, actually, Erev Rosh Chodesh, is called what? What's the day before Rosh Chodesh? Yom Kippur Katan. No, Yom, Yom, Yom Kippur Katan is the day before Rosh Chodesh. Live and learn. Point is, but the idea of it is very simple, that Rosh Chodesh is a Zikaron. So Yala V'yavo, the key word in, in every Yala V'yavo is the word Zikaron. Yala V'yavo V'yagiyah V'yayra, right? V'yiratzeh, V'yishamah, V'yipakeh, V'yipakeh, V'yizacher, Zichroneinu, Fiktoneinu, that goes on with Zichron. Zichron Avoteinu, Zichron Yerushalayim, Yerkochecha, Zichron right? Right? So this call with code are the key terms of Yala Viyavo. So Yala Viyavo in short is a prayer that we recite on the festivals and Rosh Chodesh. It's a prayer that relates to forgiveness. Now where is this coming from actually? What is, what is the idea that not just Yom Kippur but that every single festival has as a theme kapara, atonement, forgiveness. It's not just what Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a super kapara, but every festival has a theme of kapara, and that's a, presumably coming from one very simple place. 
that on every festival, with one exception, there's a special sacrifice of atonement. Si'iri zim l'chatav. On Yom Kippur, actually, we have two Syria. Maybe even more than two, it's not clear, but we have at least two. The Sa'ir on Yantiv, Rosh on Yantiv, is a sin offering. So every festival contains within the Musaf a sin offering. It's actually a very interesting thing about the sin offering on the festivals, which is that when we list the sacrifices of the Musaf, it's actually very interesting. Whatever we make of this, I'm not sure myself. But you know, when you daven Musaf, every Musaf, we are listing the sacrifices. Whether we actually want them or not, it's another story, but we list them. And so, for example, take any, it doesn't matter which day it is. Um, you list the sacrifices, it's usually an ayo, a keves, shiva, kvasim, right? Par, usually par, an ayo, and a kvasim. Sometimes there are 10, sometimes there are 11. It's interesting, 9, 10, 11. If you have to, once did a study of this, it's very interesting. Those are the sacrifices. After you list the sacrifices, then you say the following. And we will say what the mincha is. Mincha were the things brought, the libations, the flour, to get brought together with the sacrifices. What? It's very odd. We say it all the time. Those who daven in traditional davening have said it countless times. How many times have you thought about the following problem? Why in the world are the Sa'ir and Chatat listed with the Mincha? What? Why do you mention the Sa'ir separately? The Sa'ir and is part of the Musaf. But somehow, for some reason, it's very strange. For some reason, our liturgy reflects something interesting that somehow we are viewing the Sa'ir differently. The other, the sacrifices come in two different forms. One is the regular sacrifices of the day, which typically are burnt offerings. And then, you have a sin offering. But the sin offering we don't mention with the others. The sin offering we actually mention separately. It would appear that somehow, for whatever reason, perhaps we're highlighting it, but somehow the sin offering of the festivals in every festival is, is to be highlighted and separated out from these. It's another theme to, to Yantav. There's one theme of sacrifice, service, avoda, and there's another theme of, of atonement. And that's true of all the festivals. The only holy day which doesn't have a sin offering is what? It's one, one holy day that doesn't have a sin offering. Rather important holy day. Most important holy day. Shabbos. Shabbos does not have a sin offering, actually. Does not. Uviyoma Shabbat. Right? So Shabbos has only burnt offerings. There's no sin offering on Shabbos. So what does that mean for our perspective? It means, presumably, if there's no sin offering on Shabbos, it means that Shabbos is not a day of, is not a day of, of, of atonement. The theme of atonement doesn't apply to Shabbos. Even the Yom Kippur is called Shabbat Shabbaton, Holy of the Holies, whatever. But, I mean, Shabbos is also called Shabbat Shabbaton elsewhere. But the fact of the matter is, it would appear that Shabbos is not 
a day of atonement at all. If that's true, if that is true, it should reflect itself in our, in our, in our, in our liturgy. Because the liturgy, one way or the other, is reflecting the nature of the day. Does it reflect in the liturgy or not? It does, actually. It reflects in the following interesting way. Actually, I mentioned two ways that it reflects. Number one, that in the Musaf of Shabbos, as opposed to the festivals, all the festivals, there's a text, a poem, that we recite in the Musaf of Shabbat. A little poem. Maybe it's a little song. The Ashkenazim. I think the Shabbat say it too. It starts with the words, Tikanta Shabbat. Tikanta Shabbat. Tikanta Shabbat, of course, is a backwards alphabet. It starts with Tav, Shin, right? Tikanta Shabbat, Ratzita Karbadotera. It's Tav, Shin. That's, like, that's what you say on the festivals. God has established the Shabbat, the festival, the, the sacrifice, etc. No, 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 only on Shabbos. Tikanta Shabbat said on Shabbos. Tikanta Shabbat said on Shabbos. In the festivals, we say something else. We mean, I don't know what you say, but the classical sinner says it. What do you have in place of Tikata Shabbat in all the festivals, without exception, every single one of them? It starts differently. It starts with Atab HaKartanu. And then, in Musaf, you have a different paragraph. This very, that's the same paragraph on every single festival. Because of our sins, we were exiled from thee, right? Right? In other words, on Yantiv, right away, we're bringing in sin. What, what, what are we missing? Because the question is, in Muslim, you're saying what you're missing. So on Shabbos, you're not missing atonement, because there's no atonement on Shabbos. Not a, there's something else on Shabbos, not atonement. It's called Ritzui, it's different. Somehow, what the fine points are is a good question. But it's not Kapara. You won't find the word Kapara on Shabbos. Not in the Davin. Ritzui, you'll find. When it comes to Yantiv, that's not true. On Yantiv, it starts straight up. Nechata'enu go'inu me'yatsenu, right? That's number one. Number two, that's one thing. Number two, we have the very famous opinion of Rabbeinu Tam, which the Ashkenazim have adopted. Rabbeinu Tam comes up this year, actually. It comes up this year. Tomorrow. Shabbos. The Shabbos. Rabbeinu Tam, every, every, it's like this. This year, Yom Kippur falls on Shabbos. So when a, when a festival falls on Shabbos, so we're davening essentially the Nusach of, 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 of Yantav, but we add Shabbos in. Right? So we say, for example, we say the regular davening of Yantav, let's say Pesach falls on Shabbos, first day of Pesach. So, whatever it is. So the point is, then we are davening the text of Yantav, but we add in Shabbos. Whatever. This year with Yom Kippur, the same thing. Always mention Shabbos first, then the Yantif. That's true of the whole davening, the, the blessing. Baruch Atah Hashem. Bekadesh HaShabbat V'Yisrael V'Azmanim. Shabbat and Yisrael V'Azmanim. That's true of the whole davening, every place except for one place. In one place, for some bizarre reason, maybe it's not so bizarre, we don't mention Shabbos, even though it is Shabbos. Where is that? It's Rabbeinu Tam. It's about hocus of the medieval's debate it. We follow the view of Rabbi Tam, and I'll tell you what that is. It's in Yavah When, when Yantav falls on Shabbos, in Yavah V'yavah, B'yom Ha, never mention Shabbos. It's Rabbi Tam. You don't mention Shabbos. Others had Shabbos. B'yom Ha Manoach, Hazel, B'yom 
But we don't do it. We don't say Yalav Yavo. We don't mention Shabbos ever in Yalav Yavo. Rabbi Salvation once suggested, I think I heard it from him, I don't remember, that it's very much related to this idea that for Rabbi Tam, the Ashkenazim, Yalav Yavo and Shabbos are mutually exclusive. Yalav Yavo is all about atonement, it's about Zikaron. So it's about atonement. So that's true of every festival. There's atonement theme on every festival. But the Shabbos is not the case. The Shabbos, there is no atonement. Not the theme of Shabbos. But this poem, this prayer is still part of, will be part of our Yom Kippur. Yalav Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yalav Yavo is, not, the prayer over here is based on Yalav Yavo. This is a poem. This is a medieval composition. Yalav Yavo is very old. It's much older. Uh-huh. My point about the, the evening prayer of Yahweh Tachnuneinu is, I'll get to the significance of it in a second. It's a composition which is based on Yahweh Yavo. I'll get to the suggested reason for that, but I'm making a different point. Yahweh Yavo is the key prayer which is an expression of the nature of the day. The liturgy is expressing the nature of the day. The nature of the festivals is a key point is that of atonement, forgiveness and atonement. Those terms you won't find on Shabbos. I'll tell you another term you really find on Shabbos, by the way. It's related. And that is, the, for example, the end of the, the end of the sect for Yontav. Let's say, the, not for Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, for Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot. The last paragraph, or the next to last paragraph, the end of the Shavuot, Esrei, Amida. Evokeinu, 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 Melech Rachamon Rachemoreinu. Tovu Meiti Vidaresh Lanu. Melech Rachamon. That expression. We're calling God on Yantiv. Melech Rachamon. Shuva Iwenu Bamon Rachamecha. Bigwala Vocha Surutsamecha. That you won't find on Shabbos. In fact, to the extent that on Shabbos there's a question, even in Birkat Mazon, one of the blessings also is Rachemna, that there's an alternative text for Shabbos, which is not Rachem, but which is Nachem. And in fact, in the additional thing we add for Shabbos, instead of Yalav Yavol, because you never say Yalav Yavol, you say Ritzay. Ritzay, which is different. Ritzay, and is similar to Kapara, but different. God should accept. And there, we end that paragraph. God should accept, right? Shabbos has a different theme which is not Rachem but is Nachem you can see straight out that you're adding a very interesting addition which is about Necham a consolation Shabbos is a consolation there's an acceptance there's Ratzon the fine points of which have to be Analyzed, but you don't have Rachem, and you don't have Kaper, and you don't have Zichar, Zikaron, which is, these are all Yantav themes. So it's for this reason, Rabbeinu Tam said, presumably, that we don't say, mention Shabbos and Yavah Yavah. So first, let's get to back to the basics of here. First of all, the most important point, the liturgy is an expression of the nature of the day. Number two, that this idea of atonement is not specific only to Yom Kippur, but atonement is true of all the festivals, but it's certainly true of Yom Kippur. 
And here the point of Yalatach Nunenu is this. We, what, are we, what does Yalatach Nunenu introduce? You already said the Shemona Esra, correct? 31. Oh, oh. Same page. Still 31. We haven't moved to 31. Sorry. Right. 31. Don't be sorry. We haven't moved to 31. What is Yahweh Tachlin? is introduction. It's a poem to introduce something. What does it introduce? What does it actually introduce? Are there more? Sorry, I don't know. This one here. What does it introduce? I guess it's very, you got to understand, it's very basic, you know what I mean? Introduces Slichus. There's customs of saying Slichus before Rosh Hashanah even... The Svarim start at the beginning of Elul. That's all Minuk. That's not the actual, that's not the key Slichos. Mm-hmm. The Slichos are one day, basically, which is Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur, we, the traditional, classically, there is Slichos in every single prayer of Yom Kippur. But the problem is, as I said before, the Slichos are recited in Chazarat Hashats, in the repetition. But the problem at the night time is no repetition. So how do you get to the slichos? So we, 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 so we, we sort of make up. The slichos are, it's more than, let me even say better. The slichos are introduced, we'll see this in a minute, we're introduced by Yahweh V'yavu. The slichos, now most synagogues are not saying slichos in the proper way after, in the other prayers. Not shachas, not musaf, not mincha. They were eliminated. They were eliminated by a butcher, though. We didn't know how to cut properly. So they cut in the wrong place, as we'll see. But we don't say the Kislichot. But if you, those who do say the Slichot, those who have a tradition, really classical, traditional prayers, there are two kinds of people, basically. The Svarim and the, and the Yekis. The Yekis are tradition. Whatever they said, they said for a thousand years. So the Yekis, if you see, they'll say Slichot, obviously. And others who follow in their paths Aristotle and other people like that who say slichas because you're chopping out the davening basically if you don't say them. In any event, in Shachrit and in Mincha and in the Ewa, the slichot are always introduced by the same thing, by Yahweh Yavah. In the Ewa is a perfect, everybody says slichot in the Ewa. Any traditional prayer has slichot in the Ewa. And the, what introduces Yahweh Yavah. Now, what, why is Yahweh Yavah introducing the slichot? Because not just because it has as atonement as a general theme, but there's something else about Yahweh Yavu which makes it a perfect introduction to the Slichot. Because how does Yahweh Yavu end? What's the end of Yahweh Yavu? Kikel Melech Chanun Verachumata. It ends by calling God a Chanun Verachum. The Chanun Verachum are the two key descriptions, right, attributes of God. In the Yudgimu Midot, Hashem Hashem Kerachum Vachanum. So Yavav Yavav is ending with the words Chanun Varachumata. So of course, this leads us right into the Slichot, which is the repetition of Hashem Hashem Kerachum Vachanum. That's true in Niiwa. Those who say Slichot, that's true in uh, it's true in Mincha. It's true in Shachrus. It's not true in Musa for the Ashkenazim for a very simple reason. And we don't say Yahav Yahav in Musaf. In Musaf we introduce the Slichot with something different. We'll get to that. But what do you do at night time? At night time there's no Chazar Sashats. So what do we do? So we ask Yahav very inventive. So we created a Yahav Yahav. We made it up. Yahav Tachlunenu Me'erev V'yavu Shavotenu Mi'boker 
The point of this is, the deeper point is the following. And that is, the point that's important is, Yavah V'yavah was the key prayer of the holidays. It means that what we're saying is, it's, just, it's not just that on Yom Kippur we happen to say Slichot. It's that the recitation of the penitential prayers on Yom Kippur is part of the fabric of the day. What, what is it actually about? It's a day of, it's a, it's a, it's a of Slichot. It's a day of forgiveness. That's what the day is about. Semi Rosh Hashanah is a day of God's kingship and judgment. Yom Kippur is a day of a day of penitential prayers, a day of forgiveness, atonement, etc. So that's why it's intro- we introduce it, Dafka, with Yahweh V'yavah. That's the first point of, yeah, of, of Yahweh Tachmuneinu. Very beautiful prayer. Second point is that within the Yahweh Tachmuneinu prayer, there's an additional theme at least in our, as expressed through this prayer, of how we view the day of Yom Kippur. The day of Yom Kippur has two, two different elements to it, which in a certain sense are contradictory. On one end, Yom Kippur is a day of forgiveness. It's Yahweh On the other hand, there's another aspect to Yom Kippur, which is Yom Kippur is also a day of, day of judgment. It's also Yom Adin. It's Yom Adin. Not only Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah is the primary Yom Adin, but we see Yom Kippur, certainly from our perspective, as, as, right? Rosh Hashanah Yichotevun, Uviyom Som Kippur Yichotevun, we say in the Tanatokev, right? The judgment is sealed on, on, on Yom Kippur. Okay, it's true. That after Yom Kippur is over, we say we still have more time until Hashanah Rabbah. And even then we say maybe it's Hanukkah. You know, we, we keep on extending it, you know what I mean? But, the day of judgment, the Yasserit Yimei Tshuva, the Gemar Din, is Yom. So Yom Kippur is a day of Din. On the other hand, it's not just a day of judgment, it's a day of forgiveness. How do these two things live together is a very interesting question. So in this particular prayer, Yavatach Nuneinu, it strikes me that it's actually very interesting. Because we say, Yavatach Nuneinu Me'erev. Our, our pleas should ascend to God from the night time. And by the morning, right, our cry should come to you. Our song should be, should appear to you by, by tomorrow evening. By so the poem actually rests on two foundations, on two biblical phrases. The first of which is Erev ad Erev, from eventide to eventide, which is how the Torah describes Yom, Yom, Yom Kippur. Erev ad Erev. From evening to evening, that's what the Torah says. On the other hand, we have a second phrase in this little poem, Miboker ad Erev, from the morning until the night. From the morning until the night is taken from a different place. <coughs> it's taken, presumably, from the story in the Torah where Moshe is sitting in judgment of the people. And all the people came to Moshe, why do you sit there by yourself, says his father-in-law. And all the people come to you, from the morning until the night. Morning until night, so Moshe says they're coming to see God. They have a matter, a legal matter. I'm a judge. I'm a shofate. Yitro says you need more judges. Right? So, Boker to Erev is a time of judgment. But Erev at Erev is a time of Slichos. So what are we doing over here? It's in the, through the poem. What we're saying is we're actually preempting the judgment. We're starting from night. 
you would expect to start in the morning. Our prayers start in the morning, right? I know the prayers start at night. But actually, the prayer day starts in the morning. Let me ask you a simple question. You've seen many sedurim in your life, right? Have you ever seen a single, single sitter in your entire life that when you open up the daily prayer book, it starts with Maruf? I've never seen it. It always starts with Shachras. Why? The Jewish day starts at night? Mm. Yes. Mm. It's true, the Jewish day starts at night, but the prayer day starts in the morning. And for a very good reason. Because the temple service starts in the day in the morning. The day in the temple was not starting at night. The day in the temple starts in the morning. So the sitter is essentially a reflection of service in the temple. The temple service is daytime. The night follows the day in the temple, right? The sacrifices, myriv, the burnt offerings, are the offerings you bring in the day that you bring at night. So what are we doing here? So we're saying that through this Yahweh Tashlunenu, we're saying that we are preempting the judgment in a certain sense by beginning our prayers at night. There's an interesting custom an old custom whenever you have an old custom have to try to understand it the custom is that for those who wear a talit who wear a talit on davening they put on the talit before kol nidre why is that so? what is that about? we put on the talit before kol nidre two thoughts about it actually one I think is better than the other. I think it's more true. The fact of the matter is the wearing of a tawit is something typically that's done for, for prayer. In particular, though, it's something that's worn specifically, normally it's worn only in the daytime, tawit, with one exception. Slichus. The slichot service, even in the middle of the night, there the chazan puts out a tawit. It's very unusual to wear a tawit in the middle of the night. It's based on the Gemara. Mara says when God was teaching Moshe these attributes, 13 midot, Kaviyachal, as it were, God put a, a tawit and said to Moses, whenever you get into trouble, this is what you're supposed to say. He used to think that actually the wearing of the... Everybody puts on a tawit for slichot on... Everybody was a tawit. Puts on a tawit for slichot on Yom Kippur night, on the Jerei night. But the truth is, I don't think that's actually the real reason. There's a different reason. I think the real reason is something else. And that is the idea of putting on a Tawit before Kol Nidre has nothing to do with Kol Nidre. It's a completely different reason. And that is because the expectation, not a genuine expectation, but the imagined expectation, and in many places, I'm sure all the time, it was true. People did not expect to go to sleep. The custom is to stay up all of Yom Kippur not to sleep. Now the truth is, this goes back already, the high priest was kept up at night. But the fact of the matter is, because it's Me'erev Ad-Erev, that's the point. The day is a day of prayer. And this is reflected, first of all, there were people that stayed up all night. But apart from that, it reflects itself in a very interesting practice that, maybe it's dying out nowadays, but there is such a practice, certainly, and was a practice in the Ashkenazic world, which is very interesting. And that is, there was a practice to stay up all night. But on top of that, there's another practice, even though those that don't stay up all night, there's a practice to recite on Yom Kippur night specifically what is called the Shire Yichud. Anybody seen that? Shire Yichud? Shire Yichud is a set of poems 
I don't know if the Yekis do it. I imagine they do it. I would imagine so. That the these are specific poems that are written for the days of the week, very long poems. They're recited responsibly. The idea of it, and then to say Adam Smirot. In fact, Adam Smirot, the people of God only said it one day a year, Jim Kippur night. Now it's said all the time. So. But the idea that the, the day is dedicated, the whole day, so therefore, since you don't expect to sleep at night, so how are you going to put the towels on? So you make the blessing before Yom Kippur begins. I'm sure this is true, but I'm sure the second opinion, second rationale is right. But the conceptually, it's a very interesting point. We are starting the prayers. The whole day is a day dedicated to prayer, but since we st- but we start the slichot before the judgment. The judgment is only mibalkir at erev, but the slichot on erev yad erev. So this is in any event. So Yom Kippur night we have slichot. So yes. That whole liturgy, if if what you're saying is that uh, in years back, you don't have many years back. People pray all night and into the morning. So. Probably happens today in some places too, I'm sure. Okay. What is the liturgy for that? That has been lost? There is no liturgy per se for it. There's probably. No, no, it's probably, I would imagine, I've never seen a liturgy outside of Shiri Yichel, I've never seen it, but I imagine it's probably readings from the Bible, probably the Psalms. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe there is a liturgy someplace for. Yeah, I take that back. I'm sure there's some place or other. Maybe there are things from the Kabbalistic writings, the Zohar. Yeah. I would have, it's an interesting question, actually. Could we discover, we should Google it and find out, is there a liturgy for Yom Kippur night? Yeah. I imagine there's some kind of an overall idea as to what should be studied or whatever, but that's, the idea is Yom Kippur is a day, the whole day, it's a day of prayer, basically, and not just prayer in general, but Slichot in particular. Is the Slichot, again, the... Now let me say something about the Slichot of Yom Kippur. Because there are two pillars to Yom Kippur. Two main pillars. One is Slichot and one is Vidui. Those are the two pillars to Yom Kippur. Vidui, the confessions that we talked about the last three. But I want just to get... The, today, the point of today is more to help prepare us for Yom Kippur. That's the point of the... It's very, that's the most important thing. What is this day? So let me say something about... Hashem Hashem Kerachum Vachanun, which is actually a very important point about that, uh, those verses. Actually, there are several interesting features of Hashem Hashem Kerachum Vachanun. Let me make one point about it as it appears in the Torah, which is, uh, yeah, which is chapter about 34. It's a very important point. Hashem Hashem Kerachum Vachanun is the critical prayer, or the criti- I would say that prayer, it's the critical information that Moshe gets from God, which enables God to dwell amongst the people. The issue in the story, this is a very important point about the ego, the story is the golden calf. In the book of Exodus, in Shemot, this is a very important point in the Chumash, God threatens to kill all the people, destroy all the people, and Moshe is still on top of the mountain, and he prays for the people. And then it says, Vayinachim Hashem, and God relented, God consented not to destroy the people. That was God's initial thought. Moshe is able to persuade God not to do this, convince God not to do it, argue, whatever. So that's it. Then he goes down the mountain, then he carries the tablets with him, then he sees the people with the golden calf, and he breaks them, then he goes back, and he negotiates. At the end of that, 
Hashem Hashem Kerachum Vachanun, and Moshe achieves what he wants to achieve, which is to allow God to give us a second set of tablets, to build the Mishkan, to live with God together, to travel together. Here's the point about Hashem Hashem Kerachum Vachanun, very important point. Hashem Hashem Kerachum Vachanun has nothing to do with whether the people survive or not. Survival is taken care of before the, that story begins. That's already on the mountain, he prays. People shouldn't be destroyed. Okay, I won't destroy. The issue is not survival. The issue is the nature of this relationship. Is it going to be that God lets us live and even sends an angel to help us out? Is a good friend, but from a distance? That's what God threatens to do in the next chapter, chapter 33. Or is it that God will actually dwell amongst us? And the point of the story is, of course the issue is can God dwell amongst us, but God is raising a fundamental problem. How can I live with you, says God? I'll destroy you, because I'm a vengeful God. The moment you sin, I'll then destroy you. How can we be together? That's what Moses has to address in that story of the ego. How does Moshe address it? So Moshe says to God, essentially, the only way to solve the problem is for everybody to make compromises, including you, and that you're going to live amongst us as a different kind of God. Not as, a, not as an, a vengeful God, not as a God of truth, primarily, but as a God of mercies. It's Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun Erech HaPayim Rav Chesed V'emet That is the core piece of... So basically it's about reconciliation. It's not about survival, it's about repairing the relationship. That's what Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun is about. And presumably by extension... That's what Yom Kippur is about. We got through Rosh Hashanah. Maybe Rosh Hashanah is about survival. Now the question is, okay, now what? So Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun in the Chumash is what allows God to dwell amongst the people as this benevolent God, this forgiving God. That's point number one about Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun. Now I'll get to point number two about Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun. It's a very important point. Hashem Hashem this comes through the davening, especially in Kol Nidre. It's a very important point about Hashem Hashem Kerachim Bechanum. But the Slichot are doing interesting. The Slichot, as we primarily, are Hashem Hashem Kerachim Bechanum. We say that. Before we say each of that, that phrase, we are also have various poems that we recite. After some of these poems, we say something else. We say, right, God should have mercies on us, Kerachim of Abanim. And then it says, we quote a verse. From a different part in the Chumash, right? Ani Avir quotes me up, right? We, 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 right? We, the, part, the verse we quote is, Vayered Hashem Be'anan, right? Vayikrav Hashem Hashem, right? No, no, that's the first part of it. And later on, Vayomer Hashem, we have another verse, then we have God saying, Vayomer Hashem, Slachna Lavoda Alazakigolo Chastecha, forgive the people. Vayomer Hashem, Salachti Kidvarecha, God says, I forgive as you say. It appears several places in the service. Salafi Kidvarecha, it's very interesting, is not from the story of the golden calf. Salafi Kidvarecha was God's response to Moshe after the story of the spies. Also there, God threatened to destroy the people. Moshe prays, and God says, Salafi Kidvarecha. If you look at the Chumash, which is chapter 14 of the book of Bamidbar, you will see that in that story as well, Moshe mentions the attributes of God. But Moshe doesn't mention all the attributes. He only mentions some. Some he eliminates. 
doesn't mention Rachel Bechanun. Starts with Erech Hapayim. He doesn't mention Emet. Leaves out truth. Mm-hmm. So what? It's very important point. This is actually a very important point about Hashem Hashem Ke Rachel Bechanun. Not just that it's a formula, but the important point of Hashem Hashem Ke Rachel Bechanun is maybe it's the primary text in the Bible that we see already Moshe and others who follow him play with, change, adapt, transform. They, it, 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 one might say it's a text which itself is, has, has been reinterpreted within the Torah itself, depending on the situation. Moshe doesn't mention Rachel Bechanun when it comes to the spies. Why not? Why not mention Rachel Bechanun? Because Rachel Bechanun is lovely words. God is gracious, forgiving, but, but the point of the spy episode is different. Moshe can't have the same prayers at the spy episode that he had at the golden calf episode. Because the spy episode, with the golden calf, Moshe says, you know, they sinned, they found golden calf, whatever it was, let's move forward together. Let's move forward together. That's Moses' prayer at the golden calf. Let's move forward. Wonderful sentiments. What's Moses going to say at the spy episode? Let's move forward together? Let's move forward together. People want to go back to Egypt. I'm happy to move forward. But they don't want to move forward. Let me move forward together. Moses can't say, let's move forward together. Let's work, out, let's work it all out together. Move forward. We can't work it out together. Because they don't want me. They've rejected me. They want to go back to Mitzrayim. So Moses can't say, he says something else. Don't destroy them. Distribute the punishment over different generations. Give us a chance to move forward. Yes, they'll die in the desert. Don't destroy them. This gives an opportunity for the next generation. So Hashem Hashem Kerachim Bechanun, that verse, or the verses, become the, the stuff which becomes the text, primary text, in which we actually find in, reinterpreted by Moshe himself and then later on reinterpreted by others. It's like seven, eight times in the Bible. It's always an act of reinterpretation. It moves, it, it's very much connected to the idea of Yom Kippur as a day in which we can uh, negotiate and we can to some degree determine our own fate it's a very human centered day that's why we start Yom Kippur with Ponitre actually it's not Taras basis in the Bible at any level but the human ability to change God's to change God's mind the human ability to change God's word human ability to overturn the Torah as it were that's what our Tarat Nedarim is about so Hashem Hashem Kerachim Bechanun is important from that perspective as well. First of all, it's a text which is, I would say, primary text you actually see in the Chumash, Moses reinterpreting the text. He selectively chooses what he wants to choose. So does Jonah, by the way. In the book of Jonah, he also interpreted it for his purposes. He took out Emes. Because from his perspective, Emet means the God of truth. His name is Yonah ben Amitai, Jonah the son of truth. But he turns to God and says, you're not a truthful God. Why do you let these people off the hook? They sin, they should be punished. That's truth. The fact that they're crying and this and that is very lovely. But A, how do you erase the past? And B, do you actually believe the future is going to be better? Human history does not suggest to us on any level that the day after Yom Kippur people have radically transformed. So... That's part of what the book of Jonah is saying, basically. saying is, let's be real here. That's what Jonah says, whatever God's answer may be. So for these reasons, in other words, 
it's an act of, of reinterpretation. By the way, just as a small point, I'll put in my own two cents. The Yud Gimel Midot, Rav Chesed Ve'emet. I don't think the Pshat it means kindness, or grace, or graciousness, or kindnesses, and truth. I don't think Emet is actually, in that formulation, a separate Midah. I think Chesed Ve'emet, that the Emet is essentially a qualifier. You have it, for example, in, in Breshit, you have this. The servant of Abraham was sent to find a wife for Isaac. Baruch Hashem Blessed is the God who did not leave God's chesed and emet. doesn't mean truth over there. It means abiding, abiding kindness. Or when Jacob says to Joseph, Please, I'm going to die. Please do kindness and truth. Don't bury me in Egypt. What do you mean truth? I mean kindness and truth. Do kindness. What kind of truth? What's the truth? What's the emes? doesn't mean emes. Emet means it's a qual. So why we say in today's language, chesed shel emet. Kadisha. Chesed means a kindness which can't be repaid. So it's a true kindness. You're not doing it for any old purpose. The guy's not going to give you... The guy's dead. Can't repay you. Chesed v'emet. So in the good given me don't, I think Rav Chesed v'emet does not mean truth, actually. In its initial meaning, it doesn't mean truth. I do think that it becomes understood that way even in the Bible. But I don't think that's what it means. I was thinking of something else just yesterday, two days ago. At the end of the Megillah, where end of the Megillah I'm not sure this is right that's interesting at the end of the Megillah it says that Esther and Mordechai wrote a second set of letters to all the Jews to to set Purim up as a holiday and he says they sent to all the Jews 127 states divrei shalom ve'emet words of peace and words of truth that's how it's translated usually I don't think it means that I don't think Shalom Vemet means peace and truth. I think Shalom Vemet means what Chesed Vemet means. It means true peace. True peace. The truth. Now, the true peace there has a negative side. The very Shalom Vemet, true, true peace, and that has to do with what the message is. In any event, I don't think that the Emet is, means truth in the formulation of the Midot. I think it means Chesed. It means a true kindness. It's all about chesed. So this is the core. This, this, these, these verses are the core verses of uh, of Yigimu Midot, the core idea, and the central to the slichot of, of, of Yom Kippur. And we're relying on this idea that this is a formula that we can use at any time. That idea that the formula of the Yigimu Midot can be used at any time is actually alluded to in probably what is the most well-known, famous piyut of Yom Kippur Eve. Very beautiful piyut. Now, you know the way it works in the, in the slichot, that the way the slichot work is we are saying poems. Poems are themes. But typically, within the set of slichot, there's one that stands out. Sometimes you know that because they open the ark specifically for it, so it, often because it's recited responsibly so on Kippur Eve for the Ashkenazim there's one main there's, there are three piyutim we say but there's one main one I'm sure the German Jews say more but there's one main one that into so popularly and it's not just popularly is the main piyut which is what? 
No, Shmakol Leinu is different. Shmakol Leinu is part of Slichos. Shmakol Leinu is part of Slichos, but it's the end of Slichos. Shmakol Leinu is actually the F, it's, it's the culminating prayer request of the Slichot service. That's why when they when they cut out the Slichos and Shachris and Mincha and Musaf, but they kept in Zecharach Amecha and Shmakol Leinu, which makes zero sense, obviously. It's like saying Shmakol Leinu and Shmona Esrei without davening first. It makes no sense. It's just Ridiculous, obviously, it's just absurd. It's cut it with a book, but, but people say it anyway. It makes no difference. It's printed in the book. Everybody says it. Everybody, even though people that don't know better, because that's what's written. You say what's ever written down in the book. Now that's that's Shmakoin is at the end. That's the one of the piyutim. Kihine kachomer. Kihine kachomer is clearly the critical, the central, uh, central piyut of the night. It's very beautiful. So this and this this particular master, it's on page 30, 39. It's actually very interesting. What is kihine kachomer? Just bother me. Let me kihine kachomer. What is ki? Kihine kachomer is stunning, but behold, like like the right, like the stuff, the pottery shapes. But what is kihine kachomer? What's the key? Yeah, the light. Right, so it, basically it's working on the slichos of Yom Kippur night are playing off the verses in the Torah. You see, the, the first two of them, the tagline for the first one, slachna. Right? Slachna is what Moshe says after the golden care, after, after the spies. Slachna ravonu amazaki golden chastecha. God's answer to Moses' request to forgive, Slachna was Salachti Kidvarecha. That's the second poem. Omnam Kain was already that beautiful. Salachti. What's Kine Kine? What's Kihine Kachomer? Kihine Kachomer is playing off the dialogue between God and Moshe in the story of the golden calf. Right? God reveals to Moshe the Yud Gimel Midot, right? And Moshe, right? Vayimahem Moshe, Right? And Moshe said, Ki am Right? Ki am For they are a stubborn people. You should forgive them. And what's God's answer to Moshe's request to forgive them? So Ki prays off that. And the tagline of Hine Kachom is what? La Brit Habeit which is probably playing not, not so much off the Psukim, it is playing off the Psukim, but it's playing off the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah. The Gemara in Rosh Hashanah says, what is this covenant? Behold, I make a covenant with you. What covenant? So the simple reading of the Chumash is, as the Ramban points out, you broke the tablets, the covenant of Sinai, but don't worry about it, the covenant is renewed. That's the simple meaning of the Chumash. But the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah had a different understanding of it. That the covenant refers to the, the attributes of mercy. God says to Moshe, I'm going to forgive you now. When you ever get in trouble, remember these attributes. So, is playing off the dialogue, and the tagline is, that's the, that's the, Those are the slichot that we are saying at night. Yom Kippur Eve, after Shmona Esrei, 
So we're introducing with the made up Yara Viyavo, and then these three Srichot that the Ashkenazim say are playing off the, the dialogue. There are actually two sets of dialogues, if you think about it. The first is also a dialogue. Slachna, that's what Moshe said. Salachti is what God says. That's in the story of the uh, spies. And the second one is also a dialogue. Kiam she'arefu, hine'anuchi koreit brit. So the poems actually are reflecting the dialogues of two parallel stories. The first is, of course, the ego, and the second is the Miraglim. In each one, God threatens to destroy uh, Israel. In each case, Moshe prays for us, and through the use of these attributes of mercy, is able to arrive at a reconciliation. I would also add something else into the pot over here in terms of our prayers, which is this that we're in the season of the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are connected in our, through our liturgy to a different cycle. The cycle they connect to is that of the so-called three weeks and the Tisha B'Av, right? started with Shivasa B'Tamuz and then ends with Tisha B'Av, which the Mishnah says already, Shivasa B'Tamuz, Golden Calf, Tisha B'Av the Spies. Right after Tisha B'Av, we start the Haftarot of Consolation. Shiva the Nechemta takes us straight up to Rosh Hashanah. So the point is that, actually, we have these two cycles in our calendar, but the two cycles of the calendar are directly connected to each other. It's actually a very interesting point about the way these cycles work. And it's even much deeper than that. Yes? In a very simplistic way, we're saying, God, you forgave us for the golden care. We can't possibly do anything worse than that, so forgive us now. I'm not being, I'm standing like I'm making fun, but I'm not. Really. I mean, what's the most egregious thing we did? We worship the golden care. Moses okay. went up the mountain. That's true. Uh, You're reminding God of that. You, Maybe we experience things. Then you have to forgive us for the right. for what we're doing now. Okay. I have to. I'm not sure about, but you promised no, you would. No, no, no. Right. Okay. Now we're relying on a promise. You promise. That's the idea of a covenant. We're relying on the promise, yeah. but presumably we're also putting ourselves in a position where God will hear what we what we're saying. Yeah. The idea of these days of repentance, presumably. We're working, putting ourselves in a place where God will be more sympathetic to our requests. Um, we're relying on it even though we broke it. <laughs> broke the, we broke that set of tablets. We want a new set of tablets. We want to re- it's about renewal. Now, actually very interesting for another reason, which has to do with the core. It's very important to understand the core structures of the prayer. Because even though that's insufficient, but it's a good first step. And what's interesting about the Srichot is this. The Srichot, as I mentioned, outside of Mayrif, because there's no Chazar Sashat to Mayrif. So we make it up. But the other four services, which are the morning service, Shacharit, Musaf, Mincha, Ne'ila, classically had once Srichot in every service. Now, in two of the, now we only have in, most Sidrim only have it in Ne'ila, but they still have Shmachoreinu. Because when they chopped out the Srichot, they chopped in the wrong place. Okay, fine. Whatever. Now, where do we say the slichot in Musaf? If if you said them, I know you don't say them. If you if you would say slichot in Musaf, where are they recited? So this is I believe this is Adam over here. Let me see. Is this Adam? 
only what's said with Maxwell says. There is no Yahweh, you have a Moses, my friend. Yes, Adler is a good Yaki, Baruch Hashem. Adler has a Suchus. Page 169. Bless his soul. So, Adler, he has Srichot with Filat Musaf. This is actually extremely interesting. Where we, the Musaf is the highlight, you know. That's where the Chazan, we get the big, the big, big, big dollars, the Dabi Musaf, you know what I mean? So, Musaf has three parts. Musaf has three parts. The first part of Musaf, I mean, after the normal repetition with the Piyutim and all that stuff, Atopachartanu, Oleinu. Then we start with what's called the Avoda. We're not going to discuss the Avoda now, but that's the reenactment of the service of the high priest. Right. And it's reenacted. We don't have too many reenactments in our tradition. We have, I think, two, basically. One is the service of the high priest, the other would be maybe Hoshana Rabbah walking around, whatever that's a reenactment. In any event, at the end of this detailed uh, description of the service of the high priest, which essentially is called from the Mishnah, the Mishnayot of Masechet Yoma, at the end of that section, we have that little word which comes in at the very end of it. Then we describe how beautiful it was. Mary Cohen, there's a little poem, Mary Cohen, very nice, sing it, it's lovely. It's so special, so wonderful. Then that little three-letter word comes in, Avo. But, what truly? Avo avodot avoteinu echarivu naveh v'chatoteinu herichu kitzo. But the sins of our ancestors destroyed the house. Our own sins have prolonged the period of its destruction. On page 168. Right? But our forgiveness should come through our speech, our words. Zichron Devarim. Talk about Yom Kippur. What do we have to say? We have nothing to say. What are we going to say? What words do we have? You would expect that that little line would lead straight into, which it often does, what we call the confessions. But lo and behold, it's very interesting. It doesn't lead straight to the confessions. It leads to slichos. For those that say slichos, the slichot precede the confessions. That's actually very interesting on Yom Kippur to think about it. Why should it be this way? I would have said the opposite. First you confess your sins, then you ask for forgiveness. But we don't do that. We first are asking for forgiveness. Afterwards we confess. It's very curious. These are the three pillars of Musaf. So let's leave the first piece of first piece out. What's interesting is this: What actually precipitates this Hashem Hashem Kerachem V'Chanun in the Chumash? The liturgy is based on that. What is precipitating Hashem Hashem Kerachem V'Chanun? Right, that's just before that, that's true. But what is the event that precipitates the whole business? What did God say to Moshe that, that launches Moshe on his trajectory to get God back into the camp? What did God say to Moshe? Right, God said to Moshe, chapter 33 of Exodus, 33, beginning of chapter 33. Moshe was praying for the people. I'm not going to destroy them. 
Here, take the people up to the land. And that's just, I'll send my angel. Very good angel. This angel will just send out all the, kick out all the people of the land and give you a land of milk and honey. But, I'm not going with you. And I'll tell you why. If I go with you in your midst, Bekirbacha, I'll destroy you. Because you're stubborn. We're going to fight. If we fight, I'm going to destroy you. So the best thing is, let's not go together. But I'll send my angel. Translation. I will send my angel means there is to be no, uh, no, no Mishkan. The point is the fact that it actually can't be a Mishkan. Another very important point. It can't be a Mishkan for a very simple reason. Moses has broken the tablets. The tablets are not replaceable. The Torah makes a big point about this. The rest of the Mishkan can be built by Bitsalel and his crew. They're very talented. They can build everything, except for one thing. There's one thing they can't do. It's what the Chumash emphasizes. That the writing was the writing of God, and the tablets were the tablets of God. So when Moses breaks the tablets, you can't have the tablets. No one can replace them. And if you don't have the tablets, you don't have the ark. You don't have the ark, which is the critical vessel of the Mishkan. You have no Mishkan. So in point of fact, the only way to get God to dwell amongst us in the Mishkan is if God would deign to give us a second set of tablets. God seems to have no interest in doing that and explains God's reasons, which is, it's for your own benefit too, because if we're together, we're going to fight, I'm going to kill you. Therefore, take the angel. When the people heard this news, though, what did they do? People heard this news, this bad news, it says bad news. Exactly what they did. They went to mourning. That, my friends, is the, are the biblical roots of the day we call Tishabov, or Shivasabatamos. The idea of mourning, what, what, what are they mourning? The absence of the temple. No, they have God, God, they have the temple, God's presence. They're mourning the absence of God, the, the absence of God not being with us. God's from a distance. When the people hear this, they're mourning, and this launches Moshe on his trajectory now to try to get God to be with us, which succeeds actually with Hashem Hashem Kerachum Vachanun. And that is exactly what we're doing on Yom Kippur in Musaf, for those that say Srichot. Because what we're saying is we once had a temple, and it was so beautiful. We recall the beauty of the temple. Mari Kohen, right? It's the earthly representation of the heavenly temple. Right? But, but, but what? But, but it was destroyed through the sins of our ancestors, and then we had, and our own sins have, have prolonged it. And what can we say? What, 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 right? We have no words. Nothing to say. Sounds like Jews, what Judas said to Tamar. No, no words. It's a vidui there. But the vidui, before you get to the actual viduyim, the vidui starts start with slichos because that's exactly in the Chumash what was the cause, the proximate cause of Moshe saying to God, you have to find a way. Let's find a way. That's what Moshe is saying. God can't find a way, as it were. I can't go with you. I, there's no way. Says Moshe, let's put our heads together. We'll find a way. So Moshe finds a way. It's an audacious story. The way is you have to self-limit. Hashem, Hashem, Kerachim, Bukhan. By the way, before I get to the Bosheb at the Viduyim, I'll tell you something else. It's actually very interesting about Hashem, Hashem, Kerachim, Bukhan. Something we do all the time. It's very problematic. We do this all the time. When we say Hashem, Hashem, Kerachim, Bukhan, how do we say it? Hashem, Hashem, Kerachim, Bukhan. 
ערך אפיים פרב חסד ואמת. נוצר חסד ואלפים, נושא עוון ופשע וחטאה ונקה. We stop it ונקה. But of course, when you read the Chumash, it's exactly the opposite. Chumash says something very different. Chumash says God is forgiving, but ונקה לא ינקה. God is not totally going to forgive, right? Not going to wipe. God doesn't wipe the slate clean completely. God is pokeda vonavot abanim. When we say it, when we read it, we change it. We turn it on its head. They'll say, Avon v'feshe v'chata'ah v'nakei, and God wipes the slate clean. How one resolves that is a very good question. The Gemara raises the question. The Gemara says, it depends who you are. If you, if you do tshuva, then God wipes the slate clean. If you don't do tshuva, v'nakei v'o y'nakei. So presumably, in, in reading this this way, we're working with the rabbinic understanding that v'nakei v'o y'nakei is for the others. We're doing tshuva. But in any event, you see the degree to which this text is a text which the rabbinic thinking and the human thinking takes a very center stage to the degree that we turn the whole thing on its head. By the way, something that we have, I can't get into it now, but in a lot of our davening in Yom Kippur, we do exactly the same thing. I'll give me an example of this. I forget if it's Yom Kippur, or I think it's Yom Kippur, it might be Rosh Hashanah. One of the piyutim, uh, four different verses and one of the verses we quote is at the end it says talks about mishpat judgment it ends with the phrase mishpat now of course in the slichas of course in the chumash Abraham turns to God and says what the king of the judge of the whole world is not going to do justice but the point in the Suhiqa is when you read it, it means exactly the opposite. So the king of the judge of the world, you're not going to do Mishpat, right? It's an appeal for, for to Chesed. So that, it, you have this in many places where the Midrashim, the Piyutim, have re, <laughs> they're rereading the Psukim. It's, a, it's fascinating, actually. We do this with Hashem Hashem Kirachim Muchanan. It's the, it's very audacious. But it's coming from, you know, it's, there's already, it's an ancient tradition to take these very verses and to turn them on their head, given the fact that, yes, it says X when we were in that place. Now we're in a different place. So we are now. So here we have the Slichos. Now let's get back to the Slichos and get to the Vidui for one second. The Slichot are introduced in three different ways on Yom Kippur. For those that say Slichot, one is at night. Most congregations say Slichot, Kol Nidre Night and Niwa. For Niwa, there's not much else but Slichot, actually. And the Iwa, when it introduces the Slichot, is Yavah Viyavo. Kol Nidre Night, there is no Yavah Viyavo, so we have constructed one of Yavah Tachmuneinu. Those who say Slichot in the daytime, Shachrit and Mincha, is Yavah Viyavo. She introduces Slichot. Musaf, there is no Yavah Viyavo. What introduces the Slichot on Musaf is destruction of the Temple. Which is what introduces Slichos in the Chumash. Hashem Hashem Kerachum B'chanah. Now we come to the Vidui. So the Vidui, which was the main focus of the last three weeks, three sessions, the Vidui, let's say a word about Vidui. Let's say, say something about Vidui. Confession. Let me say, what is the purpose of confession actually? What is its function? Let me make a couple of points about confession in general. Which is this. First of all, the idea of confession or acknowledgement of what's wrong is not something trivial in the Chumash. It's something very central. 
because one could argue it's actually in, this, in the story of the primal sin there are really two primal sins the primal sin as we all know is the story of Gan Eden of taking this forbidden fruit and eating the forbidden fruit that's, that's the sin seeing and taking we know it's forbidden we take it anyway the disobedience fine. that's part of it but in that story there's another part to it because after Adam eats of the fruit given to him by Chava she eats first he gives him and then it says after after they eat the fruit they're hiding so Adam and his wife are hiding inside the in the very trees of the garden when they hear God's, says God's voice the sounds of God walking in the garden towards nightfall to the end of the day they hide so God called out to Adam and says where are you it's interesting that verse actually is that we can't hear God what is the tone Ayeka is it a because where are you is it a call to judgment is it God is missing God's favorite you know you walk into your house you know and it's quiet someone's supposed to be home you know or you have a dog who runs to the door when you walk in you know where, where, where's the dog where are you? Something's not right. Where, you know, what is the tone? Is it a mournful tone? Is it, is it an accusatory tone? So, where are you? Oh, I heard your voice. I, I knew I was naked, so I was hiding. Right? I was afraid. Who told you you were naked? Did you hear that fruit I told you not to eat of? There was this opportunity right there. We could have said was. Of course, I did. There's no excuse for it and whatever you I'm guilty guilty is charged that's what he could have said in which case we'll be in the Garden of Eden today that's not what he says he says something very different which is actually very important he says the woman you placed by my side she gave it to me blame God blame God and blame the other and I want to say two things about that which is I think are very important when things happen in this world somebody's responsible it just don't happen by themselves typically somebody's somebody made it happen somebody's so first of all typically if I don't take responsibility for it then by extension then someone else did it it doesn't happen by itself who did it? not me not me means the other that's first of all but there's actually that's one point but the other point I think which is in the context of Gan Eden I was just thinking about this recently I think there's something to it. And that is, what is wrong with, 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 with this idea of, of... What is wrong when Adam says what he says, which is your fault, her fault? I think what's wrong with it is, if you think about the God Aiden story, what, what's at the core of it is this question. The one who says it is the snake. The snake always says the truth. He says the issue is not about knowledge, per se knowledge per se the issue is that this being this divine being doesn't want it to be divine that's the issue which is 100% true actually God doesn't want the human to be God and I think the idea of not accepting the responsibility is a way of saying in that context I'm, 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 I've done nothing wrong which means I'm, I'm perfect 
I'm not someone who's blemished. I'm not someone who's a failure. I'm a perfect being. But if you think you're a perfect being, of course, in the context of Gan Eden, if that, if the, if the primal story, it's a way of saying, I'm, the, I'm, I'm, I'm an unblemished person. But, it, but, but it's not true. You can't be, if you're an unblemished person, then what you're really saying is, I'm God. But of course, then you're misunderstanding who you actually are. If you misunderstand who you actually are, you can never move forward because you don't, you know, you're very inauthentic. So the idea of vidui has to do with asserting one's, one's humanity. And for this reason, I think it, if you think about the history of, 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 of confession in the book of Genesis, what's interesting is that this, God says to the snake, what did you do? Right? Right? God's asking questions. God knows the answers. God's asking questions. Right? Who told you that? Snake, what, what have you done? So God says to the woman, actually. God says to the woman, may I see it? What did you do? The snake misled me. That question, is a phrase that appears and reappears throughout Genesis. Often the accuser, typically is not God, but the accuser is often a person who himself is suspect. Lovin says to Jacob, right? What did you do? You stole my art. Avimelech says, what did you do? Right? Avimelech, Lavan, these are people who are deeply dishonest people. But just because they're deeply dishonest people doesn't mean that they can't raise a very good question. What have you done? Jacob, you st- when you stole away in the night. Yitzchak, Abraham, you lied about this woman. You almost got me killed. What have you done? Okay. So he's a, he's a, he's a phony. It's true. But the question is a good one, and the truth of the matter is, we're hard-pressed to find good answers. The answers that Shoei Avram gives are problematic. Yisuk maybe does a little better. Jacob maybe does slightly better. But there's really no... No one stands up and says, it's true. It's true. I did it for the following reasons, but the truth is maybe I should have confronted you honestly. Jacob does steal away at night. One person actually is in the book of Genesis actually gives the right answer towards the end of the book and that is Yehuda. Yehuda is the one who when, when the leader Joseph says to him the viceroy says what have you done? What have you done? Let's find that. And Yehuda actually has an answer. His answer is highly instructive. It's one that the davening picks up, of course. And this is Ayomo Ahem Yosef. In this translation, page 96, chapter 44, verse 15. What, what have you done? Don't you know that a person like me practices divination? It's unclear what that means. Could mean, don't you know I'm going to find out? Or maybe it means, don't you know I need this goblet to practice divination? In short, what did you do? Okay, I'm a diviner. Now, the diviner says to you, what have you done? And here, it's very interesting. Yehuda could have said, what I would have said, which is, listen, I'll tell you the truth. And now this cup got into our possession. We didn't actually take it. Which is true. 
I don't think Yehuda believes that Binyamin stole the cup. He could have said that. Or he could have said, listen, I don't know, this, this kid is no good, or whatever. He could have said many things. That's not what he says. It's exactly the line that leads into the Slichas and Musaf. What, what, what can we say? How can we vindicate ourselves? God has found the servants, the sin of your servants, and will pay the price. We will all be slaves. We shall be slaves, and also with the, the one with whom the cup was found. It sounds like that the one who took the cup. The one with whom it is found. What is this? It's a confession. Right, he's taking responsibility. He takes, for what? What did, what did he take responsibility for, though? It's interesting. He, didn't do it. he knows he didn't do it. He knows he didn't do it. He said something different. Which is a very profound point, actually. There's some people, I know someone like this, a friend of mine. Every time she says something, it's always wrong. So it never says something that's correct. When you think of so-and-so, she says, I don't like them for A, B, and C. It's always true A, B, and C, but never correct. It's also true of something else. She's always right. She's always right about her, her conclusion is always correct. Her reasons are always wrong. That, that's because she has an intuition about something. It doesn't matter if she's right or wrong. The answer is, what, what, what should I do in this case? She should do that. Why? You give the reasons. The reasons make no sense. But the advice is always good advice. And that you have something similar of it. He knows he didn't steal this cup. He's making a different point. I could give a hundred excuses. But let me tell you something. We actually are guilty. That's the deep point. He is guilty. Not about the cup. He's guilty about Joseph. He's, that's what the story is actually about. He's something, something is wrong here, he's saying. Well, the reason we're suffering is not because of the cup. It has to do with the cup. There is something fundamentally wrong here. That's what he comes to terms with. I can't even explain it to you, he says to this viceroy. It doesn't make a difference. I, I got it. Something is not right. And God has found us out. So but the, the power of the confession here is, even though the accusation is false, but it's actually true. It's actually true. It's even in the case of Lavan, case of Abimelech, the accusation is actually true. It's a good question. He said she's your sister, and she's your and she's your wife. She lied to me. He gives a million excuses, but the truth of the accusation is a true one. Here, how could you steal this special cup of mine? They didn't. Right. Doesn't matter. That's his point. The confession is about something else, which is true. And which is that all these other things are happening to us. This is all happening. I can't explain it, he says. But something is happening because at its core, something is not right. And this is where you have, this is where you actually have, one might say in Kabbalistic, a tikkun for that first story. For that story of the... Of the, of the and the point I want to make about is that what happens to Judah? He has, he has, he has asserted, he has accepted his, his fallibility. He has accepted his fact that he is sinful. He's, right? And he says to Joseph, take us as slaves. And here the very important point. The moment he says, take us as slaves, you can hear a voice crying down from heaven. I shall be a slave. Right? Later he says, take me alone as a slave. I'll be the slave. Take my, my brother, let my brother go free to his father. Take me as a slave. But what happens to Judah in the book of Breshit and beyond? He becomes the king. Now the point is, 
The two things go hand in hand. The point of the confession is that the one who confesses, what did the, what did the gospel say? You know? The last shall be the first. And they understood this very well, which of course is the pshat here. The point of why? Because if you want to be God, which means you, you don't confess, then you, then you get banished from Eden. You can't amount to anything. You can only achieve majesty if you accept your, your full humanity. David Emel is also about confession, that's right. If you accept your full humanity, then you have an opportunity to achieve majesty. If you think that you're God, if you want to be God, and part of being God means I've done nothing wrong. I'm a perfect being. Other people around me, whatever, I make no mistakes. Then you can't achieve anything because God will simply banish you from Eden. That was the, that was the failure to, to confess in the first story is not just about shifting blame. That's my point. It has an additional dimension to it of not understanding who we all are. We are all failed beings. We're all imperfect beings. That's who the human being is. So the idea of confession on Yom Kippur is an assertion in a very real way of kind of our own authenticity, how we see ourselves. And the moment we understand that, then we don't treat the other person the way we would otherwise. Because we understand we're all in the same boat, essentially. And that is that I, if I'm a broken person, I can relate now to the other broken people around me. So that is, I think, this little tagline, Manadabeo Manit Stadok. Now, of course, it goes back to his, to his Rebbe. Judah has a Rebbe, her name is Tamar. Sadkami Meni, it's the same Hebrew word, right? Sadkami Meni, and there you have the same kind of thing. You have the confession, and you have the part of the confession, by the way, in both the story of in both the story of Tamar and Yehuda and Joseph. Part of the confession is, and this is a very important point, is the willingness to accept the consequences. But that's what you have over here. That's just the words. He says, "Okay, God has found out our sin. I accept it, and therefore." All of us are guilty. I'm also guilty. I, okay, he didn't find it in my, my, my backpack. Okay, fine. doesn't make a difference. He happened to find it in the other guys, but no difference. We're all guilty. The next step is to say, since I took responsibility, I'm take me alone. But the idea of accepting the consequences, that's a very important, that's a very important point. Yes? But he's um, making this confession, if you were, in in plural, in first person plural. So right. Really yeah. I think he's saying they were all responsible. Even though you found it in the sack of the other guy. So if you say but we're, we're all responsible. responsible right. Then Even I'm responsible. Saying, you're not saying... Right. I mean, Adam said, I'm not responsible. And Adam said, then they, they were. Right. But he, he's not saying... He's not right. saying we are responsible he's also right. true but the accusation was against the one who was the, 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 the goblet was found in the other guy's sack so I say he's, first one, on one level he's saying there's a corporate responsibility here we came down as a family we, we, we share we, we see ourselves responsible for the other one as well that's an additional dimension of, of, of taking responsibility the next step he says take me along let me, let me just give me two more minutes here I just want to say one other thing there's a lot to say about it should have done more about the vidui because there's a lot more here. I want to say something else about the about the vidui of, of, of Yom Kippur, and that is 
that there are viduyim throughout Yom Kippur, the long, the short vidu, etc. There's also something else which is a big topic, actually, but there's always made one final point. The vidui of the last of the last prayer, the ne'iwa. In ne'iwa, there's a vidui. And what is the vidui of the? In fact, according to one view of the Talmud, Shmuel, that's there is no there is no prayer, there is no shmonesri for ne'iwa. You don't say shmonesri. We we don't follow that practice. But Shmuel said, for ne'iwa, you don't need a whole prayer. You need just you need just one little section of ne'iwa, which begins with the words. You extend your hand to the sinners. That we have. That's the key piece of Ne'iwa. Now, how far he went with this, I don't know. We have two, there are two themes that we have in Ne'iwa. Two paragraphs in Ne'iwa. See if I can find the, in the Adam where this would be, page uh, 265. That's the first paragraph. And the second paragraph begins with the words, These two paragraphs are, this is the critical paragraph in Eva. This is the core of Eva. These two, you have to understand that. It's always good to know what the core, this is the core. It's interesting that there it talks about Vidui. You extend your hand to this. You have taught us to confess before you. In order that we uh, cease from the Oshek Yodenu, from the theft, things that we are taking uh, that we're not allowed to take. And Utkabwele Bichuva Shlemu Vifanaha. So let me just say one thing about this business of. These two paragraphs, first of all, the first of which speaks of the sinfulness of the human being, and the second which speaks of the potential majesty of the human being. Within the first paragraph, that the Talmud mentions, you have taught us to confess. The truth is, the confession here, we only mention one thing. Not confessing all our sins. We say, you have taught us to confess all our sins in general, right? In order that we stop the theft of our hands. What is that referring to? So, what's interesting is that strikes me is very much related. Well, to more than one text, but primarily to one story that we are reading just before Nila, the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, Jonah is, goes to Nineveh, he makes his pronouncement. He's hoping the city will be destroyed. But the king of Nineveh gets off his throne, right? And he tells all the people to repent. They both put on sackcloth, even the animals are wearing sackcloth, right? And he, and, and he says, find this verse, so he says to his, uh, to his, Subjects, the end, to chapter 3, I think, of Jonah. Let's see, here it is. Show a little book. He says, on page 1336, they all put on sackcloth, the humans and the animals. They cried out to God forcefully. Let, let, let us cry to God forcefully. 
And every person should return from from their evil ways. And from the injustice, the theft or injustice which is in their hands. They should return which our liturgy translates into and the idea I think is this the idea has to do with what I mentioned before which is the one speaking is the king of not just the king he's the king of Nineveh evil empire right Nineveh we trace back to the line of Nimrod to Bavel right the ones that want to build the tower to heaven and the point of it is means that we have to get a true sense of who we are what our, what our possibilities are what our limitations are that's the problem with Babel Babel has to build the skyscrapers to the heavens and God goes down to see the human being so that kind of behavior which may be related also to taking of the of the Eitzadat it was also Oshek Yodeinu was an hour's. It's also an act of theft. It has to do with trying to get a sense of who we truly are. And that is the limitations. It starts with the limitations. Once you get beyond the limitations of who we truly are, then you move to the second paragraph. You recognize the human from the beginning to stand before you. To stand before God. Amida. Amida means standing in God's presence. Not falling to the ground. Standing up. So, the other side of it is the potential that everybody has to, to, to relate to God, to speak to God, to confront God. Those are the two aspects of what it means to be human. The vidui has less to do with the specifics at the end of the day, has more to do with trying to get an accurate assessment of what our limitations are, number one, and then what the possibilities are. That's what Yom Kippur is actually about. It's more than Rosh Hashanah. It's really about what is possible. I mean, sometimes we have to clear out, you know, before you can move forward, as we say in the Haftorah, Sovu, Sovu, Panu, Derech. You have to clear the road. Because there are many, there are many roadblocks in the way, unfortunately, roadblocks of life. Sovu, Sovu, Panu, Derech, we say in Rosh Yom Kippur, in the Haftorah, which is glorious, truly. Clear the road, right? But once the, once the obstacles are removed from the road, then we can begin to think well, what's possible. Gotta get rid of the stuff that's getting in your way. Okay, once we do that, then we can turn our attention to the second paragraph, which is How can we affirm human dignity in ourselves and others? That's very central, so basic. Right? And you have set us aside from the beginning. That's the description of the human being in the first chapter, first creation story, the second creation story to be God's representative on earth and to reflect all that is uh, sacred. So that's the opportunity. So that's what Yom Kippur is about, really. At the end of the day, the vidu is way much deeper. It's not about specifics. The specifics are very important. But the last vidu is much more global, much more general. And that is, what is that place in this world? It's not really our world completely. We are residents in God's world. But we have privileges, rights, and opportunities. And we'll stop here. There's much more here, but I have to stop at this point.